Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam, tune in. Good evening, everyone. You are listening to Rowan Grant Method, where we talk all things fitness, well-being, performance, and lifestyle design and mindset so that you can live a high-performance life. On today's episode, we have Adela Holmes returning to do part two, talking about how to heal from trauma, specifically complex and developmental trauma. Again, this is actually one of our first opportunities to go live. We've done a video recording live. once, but we're going live on Facebook. So for anyone that's tuning in to have a listen, I hope you enjoy the content. So for anyone who didn't, uh, wasn't around for part one, uh, Adela is a therapeutic care and practice consultant basically specialising in traumatised kids in a therapeutic setting and previously was a family therapist. So welcome to the show again, Adela. We're very good to be here. Thank you, Rowan. Excellent, excellent. So we covered a lot of things to do with complex trauma and developmental trauma in, a, in another name. Yes. Where would you like to go from here? I know we're going to touch on healing. Yes. What things, I'm sure you've had some time to consider, what we might have left out. Well, yes, there are a couple of things that were in my mind um, in terms of well, and they'll be of interest to people who listened last time, uh, but I hope they'll be of interest to people who didn't listen last time. But I did want to say that uh, more people, like pe- people often think it's it's a rare thing to have experienced adverse experiences when you're growing up and when you're a, an infant and a child. Um, but it's actually not all that rare. And uh, and there may well be people listening who have had experiences along a continuum. There's, you know, people who've had very, very bad experiences at one end, but people who've had not-so-awful experiences but nonetheless impactful. Yes. Um, And one of the things I often talk to, and certainly when I... Um, have done in past times more along family therapy lines, it's not uncommon for parents to find it quite difficult to parent their children through that stage Mm. where they're individuating and they roll their eyes at everything you say and they don't want to do anymore all the things that you think that you'd like them to do. And one of the things I say to people going through that experience, and I think it's got relevance to trauma as well, is that you're an adult for a lot longer than you're a child. And mammals have probably the most protracted infancy and childhood in the mammal world, um, which is both good and bad, I think, Um, because I think what happens during childhood, which is you know, a time that can be enjoyed but can also be quite stressful for parents. But it's a very different experience to when young people start to actually want to find themselves and grow up. And uh, I often have used that uh, explanation about what's childhood all about. It's actually about getting ready to be an adult. Well, you're right, because they're raising adults. They're, they're, they, obviously, it's, they're a child, but yeah. they're developing and help cultivating them into becoming exactly. functional adults. And yet, I mean, let's say childhood lasts for approximately 12 to 14 years. Um, and that's changed over time because historically children 
graduated into the world of working before, you know, full-time education was available to children and became compulsory. Children actually sort of took their place in the fields in um, olden days uh, as soon as they were able. So that's altered over the years. That's a historical sort of artefact. But, but being a child is a very brief period in the lifespan of a human being. And I always say that um, some of the qualities that we see in childhood that are actually irritating in childhood and quite difficult to parent, for example, a child who has an answer for everything, a child who has lots of thoughts of their own and will talk back at parents. Now, okay, that might well be challenging to the authority of a parent, Mm. but think of the adult that that child will become. I 100% agree. Just those <laughs> qualities will set them up to be a game changer in, in, as Absolutely. an adult. They're going to question authority. They're going to yep. have their own moral compass. They're yep. going to be making good decisions. So Absolutely. It's, um, with that being cultivated, so encouraging that is important. Yes. It reminds me of a time, funnily enough, with my daughter. It was very funny. We were, um, we were in the car and I bought her this little fan and she's sitting in the car and she was spraying it and I go, can you stop spraying that in the car? You're going to get the car wet for whatever reason. And she goes, oh, I'm like... Um, because you're in the middle seat because the child seat was in the centre of the car. Mm. I'm like, so you can't do it. She goes, Dad, can you wind down the window? I'm like, I don't think it'll work, but I'm going to encourage this. Mm. There's a bit of lateral thinking, a bit of solution focus. Let's wind down the window. Mm. She had a go. She couldn't reach a window. I'm like, good job for trying. Mm. Lateral thinking, but we can't use it in the car. But mm. It's just sort of, I like to encourage that mm. line of thinking. Yeah, she tried. You try. You gave it a go. It didn't work. Yeah. But. Yes, you're right. There's a bit of to and fro in there in terms of recognition of what that demonstrated. But that can also be quite a challenge. You know, if you're in the middle of doing a hundred things at once and you've got to get to work and, you know, you just want your child to comply and I've been there, (laughs) I only have one child, but I know what that feels like. And it takes a big effort to say to yourself, okay, (laughs) I have to understand this bit of behaviour in the context of a whole life. Yeah. Often we lose sight of that and we we only take the very short-term view, which obviously sometimes you have to take um, and children do need to learn boundaries and there's all of that which is a given but there is a place to actually see the attempts of a child at um, independent thinking and sometimes very smart thinking and creative thinking as less of an irritant and more of what they're showing you in terms of how the adult they're going to be. But as you said, finding time to allow that process is hard because life is busy. You know, Mm. parents have got... Both parents are generally working. There's mm. many single parents out there as well. And as you said, they've got places to be. They've got things that they need to do. There's Absolutely. deadlines and stuff. Mm. They've had a long day and they just want to get mm. things done and they want people to comply. Yes. And I guess when it comes to that, what are some resourceful ways that people could use? Because obviously there is one end of the continuum where people have extreme, let's say, punishment mm. or discipline. Mm. How can we actually do this in a healthy way? Yes, yeah, so it's a very good question because there is a there is a, a do. A dividing line, if you like, um, and I always am a devotee of explanation rather than just control. Yeah. So it takes a bit of practice, 
and you can shortcut it a bit, but it it is the difference between saying, stop that, stop that, don't do that, don't do that, and now, if you keep doing that, what do you think is going to happen? So you can still use their thinking capacity, but you ask questions and you ask real questions because sometimes we ask questions that aren't real questions. We ask questions and then we give the answer, right? you give an example of that? Uh, Yeah. Um, You you might say, why are you doing that? Oh, I know, you're doing such and such because you think such and such. Um, Okay, so you're filling in the blank. You're filling in the blank for them which actually takes away the challenge of it. Mm. So you might be better off saying to the child, what do you think is going to happen if you keep doing that? What do you think is going to happen if you keep hitting your sister on the head? You know, ask it. And sometimes I would even recommend saying, now this is a real question, so I need a real answer. I like that And then approach. you ask the question. Because you come, you're approaching their behaviour with curiosity. Absolutely. You're not assuming what their intention is. You're mm. actually getting them to respond. It's getting them maybe even to consider what they're hoping to achieve based mm. on their actions and what they've done. So mm. it's cultivating that internal thinking. It's a really good approach. Mm. I was having a conversation with my granddaughter who's nearly 11 and uh, I can't actually remember what the topic was now but I, I asked her a, one of those questions And she stopped and she thought and she said, hmm, good question. (laughs) 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 And I said, well, okay, if it's a good question, it deserves a good answer. So you work on it. (laughs) Did she get back to you with an answer? Uh, Yes, she did, but I've lost the content of what it was. I'd love to have given you the example, but but it it just was... Gave her pause for thought. Yeah. Um, and I will always do that. And often when she and her younger, slightly younger brother are having a bit of a to and fro about something yep. that they can't agree on, I will say to them, I am not a referee, so I'm not going to sort the answer to that out. Mm. You and he are going to be brother and sister for a very long time, long after I'm gone you have to get better at sorting those things out. Conflict resolution at a young age. Works. Yeah. Because they do either work it out or they agree to disagree, but either way I haven't stopped, stepped in and thought for them. Yeah. And that's very tempting to do that with kids, but it actually makes life harder, not easier. Now, none of what I've just described constitutes anything traumatic in the life of a child, right? That's just normal parenting. Yes, of course. Quite normal, healthy parenting. There there are differences in situations where children have very adverse experiences. Now, I think you're describing it as normal parenting, but I really don't think it's that common. You could assume that it would be normal or it should be normal, but Mm. I really don't think that approach is common. And I think a big part of it would be is there's a lot of parents that can't regulate themselves, possibly based on their traumatic period and their growing up as well. Mm. But if they're struggling with regulation, and we've talked about co-regulation, the Mm. kids aren't going to learn that. Mm. Parents really aren't in a state to be able to allow that to play out. Yes. So how can we teach parents to regulate in the moment? Well, that's a very good point that you make there. Um, And it just made me think, perhaps I might design a parenting course. (laughs) 
Okay. I'm the planning one, so let's put it together. <laughs> okay. Regulated parents is what it's going to be called. I like that um, because what that requires is the capacity to regulate. Yeah. Um, and I think I was talking last time about how when people have experienced uh, extreme adversity in childhood, the first impact of it is on their brainstem, yeah. which doesn't organise itself well for self-regulation. So how would that manifest in an adult in their everyday life? Well, um, adults who don't regulate well get very thrown by simple things that you would imagine wouldn't necessarily make us feel completely confused. The reason for that is that when your brain stem isn't well organised, you are in a, a state of less effective thinking mm. because when our brain stem is not well organised, we uh, default more easily to our more primitive self. Can you give that analogy you had in the last session, just for the people that didn't listen to the previous episode yet, mm. about the job interview analogy? Yes. That was excellent. Yes. So this relates to our level of internal calm and regulation. So if we are not generally well regulated uh, and we go into a job interview, and I'm sure pretty much everyone who's listening has been in this situation, you're in a job interview, it's stressful, you need a job, you know what you know or you think you did, um, and they ask you a question and you just can't get it. Mm. Like you know you know the answer but you can't bring it to your mind and that's because you're a bit heightened yeah. and the more heightened in state or dysregulated you are, the lower down in your brain you go. And when you're lower in your brain, the upper parts of our brain, the bits that are required for very good thinking, that's the cortex, prefrontal cortex, that's your executive brain function. It's actually not really very well online. Mm. might be partially online, but in that job interview situation, the bit that's online is not where that knowledge is yeah. and you cannot bring it to mind and then of course you become more stressed because you didn't bring it to mind and I think I said last time a good interviewer will know that there's a certain amount of stress yeah. in a job interview so they might help you and that help might be enough to help you calm down a bit you know that you offer them a glass of water if for some people it actually might make them feel worse yeah because they might feel shame yeah. as a result of not being sufficiently well regulated and it might actually throw them further down. Wow, and the job interview, uh, the interview, I was thinking <coughs> they're actually doing them a favour, being empathetic, compassionate, mm. uh, supportive and mm. having the complete opposite effect. It might, yeah. it could. Um, that still wouldn't necessarily mean that the person couldn't ultimately do the job that they're interviewing yeah. for, but uh, again, a good job interviewer might say, um, well, look, why don't we have another go at it, you know, um, or let's ask a few other questions and perhaps come back to that later. So, you know, a compassionate interviewer would do that. Um, and I, I know I ages ago interviewed somebody who 
realised that they hadn't done a very good interview um, and actually got in touch with the panel afterwards and said I did a lousy interview because I was really nervous. Yeah. Um, that was great. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it just shows that you know yourself. You walked away and you self-evaluated and you thought, mm-mm, I'd better not just walk away from this. Yeah. Better do something to repair it. Yeah. And it worked. I think it that's was a very fine. empowering thing to do as well because mm. you're identifying it, you're naming it, you're owning it, and then yep. uh, you can work towards it instead of running away mm. and never doing another interview. Exactly. Yes, but people who are very dysregulated a lot of the time because of adverse experiences may not be able to do that because you become or can become overwhelmed by shame. Yeah. And shame is really unproductive but very common for people who have had adverse childhood experiences. So how can we overcome that? Because I feel like, I know we touched on last time, we'll talk about neglect and a lot of old parenting strategies and advice do sit on the cusp of neglect. They do. There's a lot of people out there mm. that have been, they've suffered neglect, maybe mm. not abuse as such, mm. but definitely neglect. Mm. And then obviously the other end of the continuum, people that have had horrific abuse. Mm. As a result, these people have gone on to have kids. They mm. struggle with regulation. The children mm. can't learn how to regulate by modelling their behaviour. No. They can't handle their, when they're going through their own problems, it, the cycle continues. Mm. So... I encourage parents to, if it's not just for themselves but for their kids, they want to be regulated so their kids can learn this, mm. so they can learn to model from someone. Yeah. How can they do it as a parent? What can they do if they've experienced this yeah. as and an it, adult? A, look, it, it's on a bit of a continuum and it depends on the degree of the experience that you had in childhood. I would always say if you feel that some kind of a self-help group or a parenting course is enough then go for it and yeah. do it. You will see if it is enough from the experience that you have. One of the things that I think is really important in terms of approaching any kind of change process is to understand the role of shame and how it gets in the way mm. often. So shame is a very uh, essential element of an abusive experience and it's really unhelpful but it it is inextricably linked with the experience of having been not cared for in an optimal way. And so often that's the one thing that gets in the way of change. Can you expand on that? Because I imagine it's very much attached to someone's feeling of self-worth Correct. and their ability to yes. show self-love. Yes. So can you just expand on shame? So um, imagine that uh, a part of the negative experience that a child has had is uh, an ex- uh, a, a kind of family setting where kids get laughed at if they can't do something. Yeah. So, you know, they attempt something beyond their capability um, and rather than get shown how to do it or help to do it, all the adults sit around and laugh at them. Mm. Now, we've probably most of us have been in that situation once or twice, not going to kill you, yeah. <laughs> you know, not going to create massive overwhelming shame. But if it is the exact flavour of your life, and you don't get much other input or nothing that really manages to balance it out a bit, then 
anyone who has ever experienced shame, and we all have at some time, can't do this, can't do that, you know, you get that hot feeling and you you feel awful inside. You just feel totally inadequate to the task and you feel quite dysregulated. You can't think straight. Yeah. You go into a very primitive state. But that sort of hot flush of shame uh, is common in children who've had that experience and you just kind of shut down and go into a primitive place. This, what you've just described, pretty much can be put across so many adult people that you wouldn't have even considered had experienced trauma. People Mm. in the industry like yourself, I get a fair idea of it just from experience that I've been around with you Mm. as well. But so many people that are lacking confidence and maybe they have access to the information, maybe they have support, but they just Mm. simply don't, they're not willing to fail or try because they've got this feeling of shame. Exactly. It's been conditioned into them from an early age through repetition and they just... People, and other people get frustrated, like, mm. it's simple, just do this. Why don't you just change, just mm. do this? But it's not that simple. It's not that simple that at all. It's that core emotion. It is, it, it's overwhelming and it's quite toxic. Yeah. And uh, and it gets in the way of people even being willing to try something yeah. new. So they've got no chance of succeeding if they can't try. One, one of the other very, very difficult to address issues of uh adverse childhood experience to that degree is that people develop a very negative view of themselves. Mm. What the actual formal title is that you develop from your attachment experiences with primary carers, uh, an internal working model, right? So it's the it's the view you have of yourself yeah. in the world. How else do we learn who we are? Yeah. and what we're like other than from our first experiences of relationship. Yeah. And if those experiences are difficult, negative, shaming, unpleasant. That becomes your internal dialogue. Be- it, it becomes your sense of self. Yeah. And for some adults, the seeds of where that all comes from are so- sown so deeply that people actually who've had those experiences don't feel comfortable when they succeed. Yeah. So, so they the, don't, don't, don't feel like they're deserving of success? It's, it's, it's even almost beyond that. It becomes something uh, that automatically gets triggered inside yep. them that they feel a discomfort with success. I imagine this would stem over to relationships as well. A lot of people self-sabotaging relationships where they're mm. not feeling that they're worthy of love. Mm. It, would, it would probably stem from the same thing. Same thing. Very, yeah. very much the same thing. And it is so deeply ingrained in the person that they don't really know that it's there. Yeah. See, the unconscious mind is remarkable. Mm. People don't know that it's working in the background. Mm shaping all their decisions, their behaviours, their habits and everything mm. else as well. And I've worked with people over the years who when things are going well, something will always go not well. And, you know, it's... Is that perceived as something not going well or something actually not going well? Well, it becomes something actually not going well ah. because of what they may do. Yeah. So okay. they may have um, a feeling of discomfort if things are going well and then they may do something 
that actually brings that to life, if yeah. you like, and there's a variety of ways that people will do that, which, you know, can range from just uh, not turning up to work. So you get the job that you really wanted yeah. and you go for a week and then it becomes harder and harder and harder to go. Yeah. Uh, people tend to badge that as laziness. It's not laziness. Yeah. It is something much deeper. And, you know, that's a very glib and uncompassionate way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, people on talkback shows who always have an opinion on the person over there but often fail to look inside themselves yeah. will have lots of opinions about things like that. And, of course, what does that add to? The shame yeah. in the person. Wow. And the way they view themselves and how yes. they're interacting with the world. And yeah. Yeah, so it just continues the cycle. Yeah. So how can they break free first of shame, this identity that they have? I think most people need some help. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've spent my life helping people break free of shame. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it takes years. Yeah. Right, so uh, for anyone who's listening who has had a difficult childhood experience, I would say don't give up, but I would also say get help. Yeah. What help works? Because there's so many modalities, there's there so are. many people out there and there's so many things that don't work. Even in the realm of trauma-informed approaches, you've mm. come across some terrible approaches. Well, some well, people say trauma-informed when it's not really. Yeah. It's um, just a buzzword that they like to throw out. Yeah. Anything that's trauma-informed will be curious yeah. and will involve an understanding that there is something deeply embedded in the person's experience yeah. that is going to take more than just thinking to address. Yeah. Right? The thinking needs to be guided. Yeah. So... Uh, often people go to cognitive behavioural therapists. Yeah. Now, I'm not knocking cognitive <laughs> behavioural therapists. For some people, in some circumstances, it really works. Yeah. But it involves thinking about and processing yeah. a particular problem or a series of... It, it is. And so until or unless the person has become better regulated... Yeah. It's really going to be difficult for an approach like that to work. Yeah. Because at the very moment when you most need the cognitive approach that you've been taught is the very moment often when you're least able to yeah. bring it into play. Yeah. Because that part of your brain that's required <laughs> to do it Doesn't is work. not happening at that <laughs> time. So... I would always make sure that the person that one is going to talk to is really trauma-informed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that might take a bit of looking around and checking, uh, but it's worth doing that because, you know, you could go to certain therapists who have a, a, a less trauma-informed and a perhaps more medical model approach yeah. um, and be looking at uh, the individual in terms of um, traditional uh, understandings of mental health problems. Now, there's, again, there's a, 
continuum of people with mental health issues and some of them do not relate to early trauma, Mm. but some do. So it's a kind of horses for courses approach. That's why one has to be really careful about selecting the right kind of therapist. Yeah. Well, I reckon there's many pieces of the puzzle. Obviously, regulation is essential. Yes. And then you're allowed to actually process Then thoughts. you build on that. Yeah, and yeah. then you can use things like CBT and other mm, things like that absolutely. To, um, to break things down. And, be and they can work well. And, and even within the work that one might do with a trauma-informed therapist, mm. at a point, once you feel safe and you feel that, you know, there's some work having been done and things are starting to be achieved and shame is falling away a bit. Now, that could be two years' worth of work, though. I'm not being unrealistic. It's hard work. Um, But once there's safety in that relationship, it may well be possible for that person to introduce a cognitive approach and for it to work because the person who's having the therapy feels safe. In that relationship. So does that feeling of internal safety very is that important. what helps move towards releasing the shame? Very important. Very important in terms of being able to regulate yeah. the brainstem and then all the other bits of the brain start to behave in a way that is a bit more optimal. Mm. Um, and remember, this is neurobiological. This is not just thinking. This is actually physiologically based and neurobiologically based. So this is not someone uh, who is failing to think properly or, you know, uh, too lazy to do the work. There's nothing to do with it. This is about changing brains. Mm -hmm. All very possible. And I think that's a really important message. If I got no other message across today, (laughs) there is always hope because it is absolutely possible to heal a brain and to reshape a brain Mm. that has been shaped by complex trauma. Yes. It's possible to do it with uh, type 1 trauma, which is the trauma that uh, impacts on an already organised brain, but it's also possible to do with complex trauma, which is a brain that's been organised within the context of a traumatising experience. That is is a great message of hope to give out to people. It's very important. A lot of people, they say, look, this is just me. This is the ship I've been Mm. given. I just Mm. have to deal with it. This is my past. I'm not capable of those things or living Mm. that life that other people can because Mm. of what happened to me. Mm. And then they just don't, maybe they tried seeing a therapist once and they did that once. And it didn't work. It didn't work. So they give up and they just Mm. accept that. That's their life now and that's mm. just the way things are. Yes. But the brain does change itself. It certainly does. Learning other little skills like meditation, for example, to yes. reorganise the brain and build those neural pathways. Yeah. It's like getting from one destination to another through a forest and you're hacking mm. through the mangroves with mm. the machete. Mm. Then the path gets a bit clearer, gets a bit clearer. Eventually you're running down the path, but it mm. takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time plus effort plus safety. Yeah. Safety is the key. But safety is very hard to achieve with a person who doesn't, A, believe they deserve to be safe or, B, even know what it feels like. Yeah. Um, And that's the first frontier, if you like, safety. Well, you mentioned last week that familiarity that people seek out. Mm. I'm thinking back to 
my teenage years, I knew a lot of people that were up to a lot of mischief. A lot of them are probably listening to now. But in that situation, I really think a lot of them were just perceiving the world around them as threats. Mm. They were constantly under threat all the time. And mm. that shaped how they interacted with others, their behaviours, the exactly. situations they got into, mm. how they responded, how they regulated their emotions, because they were constantly under threat. Mm. And they're walking around as adults now. And yeah. a lot of them, they try to dismiss it and just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. But, you know, how can what can they do? Safety is the first step. But how can someone that – is there things they can do by themselves to move in the right direction if they're not quite ready to go see a therapist? Well, look, it depends on who's around you, right? So one of the other features, if you like, of having grown up in that kind of an environment is that we tend to seek out the familiar. Yeah. The familiar is not always the good, mm. right? It's not always good for us. So if we're seeking out the familiar but what's familiar is being treated badly... It's not going to help us. But sometimes uh, we can have the good fortune to happen upon people who don't give, like don't don't get that, uh, accept the push away because often people, you know, there's a, a myriad of reasons why people push away those who are the people they need the most because it's unfamiliar and they don't recognise it. So they will gravitate towards what they do feel familiar with, which is not necessarily what's best for them. But sometimes, through good fortune, one might have a partner or a group of friends who are there for you. That can help in some circumstances, and again, it's on a bit of a continuum. It's a bit hard to know, yeah. but personalised to the individual. Very personalised to the individual, but to be able to start recognising patterns in oneself that yeah. are not helpful uh, is a good step yeah. in the right direction. The only thing is that in order to do that, we have to understand, to a certain extent what goes on in the brain of someone who has been brought up to not feel very good about themselves. Yeah. Because, again, the familiar, we gravitate to the familiar and we don't trust the unfamiliar. So we might meet someone who is fantastic, but we will do things unconsciously that push that person away uh, because it's unfamiliar and it's like, ooh, this doesn't feel right for me. Um, So within relationships there there can be some relief uh, but it's not something that you can rely on because relationships are variable. Yeah. So, you know, there's such a degree of variability from that self-sabotage through to the fact that not all relationships last. Yeah. They just don't. Um, So my real encouragement for anyone who is really struggling with, you know, a a background that's quite difficult is to seek out a good trauma-informed therapist. Uh, And they're out there. There are people out there should develop a list That'd be fantastic. Of people that you can actually suggest to people. That'd be very good. Um, Because they're out there, 
and there there might be a limited uh, group, but they're they're certainly out there. But also, the amount of people who have experienced severe uh, neglect or abuse is also relatively small. So, you know, I'm not saying there's someone for everyone, but yes, it is on a continuum. And everybody experiences things differently. And we also get caught up with guilt. So we may know that in our parenting some things were done that were far from optimal, but we also love our parents. And we love them no matter what. Uh, and that's part of the complexity of it. So uh, as a family therapist, often family therapy might be a part of the journey. Mm. might not be all of the journey and it might take a, a, a degree of readiness to get onto that path, but it can be a very useful part of the journey because if parents are able to acknowledge what's happened, yeah. that's very liberating. Yeah. Not always the case that they can, because also it's very hard. It's very hard to accept things that you may have done that weren't optimal without feeling shame. Yeah. Now, a good therapist would never uh, imply shame because there is no point in doing that. It works against growth and development. But that doesn't mean that people won't feel it. Yeah. So, and it's very uncomfortable. To feel. So how can people work through shame, obviously with the therapist, but what's with the help. process? The, well, the process certainly is of one of curiosity and uh, a, a good therapist will always, I think, overt the issue. So uh, certainly in, in a family therapy setting, I'll overt it in a way that is not terrifying, uh, that actually invites ownership bit like the conversation I was having that I was talking about with my grandchildren. Okay, so, you know, we all do things, we do things, sometimes we know how to do things, sometimes we don't. Let's curiously explore what has happened Mm. with the overall intention of things getting better. So, yes, it's hard work and, yes, it's sometimes uncomfortable. And sometimes people will come to the party and sometimes they won't. So there's no guarantees. But it sometimes can be very useful at a point. So it's a journey. It's a journey of undoing things that have been done. It's a journey of immense change. But, oh, goodness, what's at the end of it? (laughs) It's like um, some personal relief and change. And nobody is ever too old. Yeah. There is never a point while there's breath in you, there's never a point where things can't be better. Never, ever. Uh, It's just a matter of believing that. How much can change depends on the individual, their circumstance, but nothing will change without the attempt. 100%. It really is... For you to have a happy, healthy, successful life in any scheme, Mm. in any scheme of things, Mm. you need to be invested in yourself in some capacity. Obviously, you need help from other people and the help is there like therapists that we will put together this list Mm. and make available to people. 
but you actually have to do things about it. And even when you see the therapist, you have to integrate things and you actually have to apply them. Yeah. It's not a wave a magic wand and no, solve. No, there, there is no magic wand. I used to many, many years ago when I worked in child protection and I was a case planner, I saw a pink plastic magic wand with yeah. a star on the end <laughs> in a kid's toy shop and I thought, I'm going to introduce a bit of humour into my case plan meetings um, and I would sometimes walk in and be waving it around <laughs> yeah. uh, because I think it's important to say that I think, you know, humour that is not derisive um, and doesn't put people down can often make people people feel a lot more comfortable. But it's got to be nice, benign humour. But I used to go in and say, see this, it actually won't work unless you give it its magic power. Yeah. So, you know, we used to, and this is to adults, but we were having some fun and I was lightening the mood because when people are in a heavy mood, it's much harder (laughs) to actually lose hyperarousal and hypervigilance because they feel unsafe. Yeah. Um, and what I used to experience back then was a lot of the parents who came into these case plan meetings had their own experience yes. of abuse and or the cycle neglect. Continues. And yeah. So we had to remove shame for them to be able to remove shame from their children. Yeah. But we did it in a spirit of curiosity and acceptance. I think... And that's really important. All the best people that I've ever spoken to that are in any form of helping relationship approach things with curiosity. Yes. Every single time. It's a common theme and approach. In terms of... There's a big issue where people say, look, I might not have had the best childhood, whatever. You did mention, yes, many of them still love their parents. And I want to dig into that a little bit later. But a lot of people, like, they decide, now I'm going to confront my parents and blame them for absolutely everything. But... That parent, yes, there were some that were just abusive, mm. but many of them were doing the best that they actually could given their sense of regulation and their experiences trying to just Absolutely. make sense of the world and move forward. So it's yeah. not entirely their fault. So we're not blaming anyone's parents. Blame's got to go most, out of the window. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to, you know, again, being like introduce a little bit of humour and say there there's a... a large vacuum cleaner coming down through the ceiling and it's going to suck up all the shame and the blame. Yeah. Because I really don't think that we're going to go anywhere if we talk about blame and shame. Yeah. Now, it's hard to let go of. It's a very emotional topic. It's a because sometimes it's all the individual has to hang on to mm. is their anger. But it, the anger becomes very difficult to experience because they also love them. And, you know, the, the statistics, I can't quote the numbers, but I will say from many, many years working around the child protection system, a very, very high percentage of children who've been placed out of parental care will return to them afterwards. Yep. Whether that lasts, whether that's sustainable, that's another matter, but they will all go, always go back seeking something. Interesting. Seeking resolution, I often. A, on this topic, I'm glad you brought this up because I actually had a listener reach out to me a while ago. Mm. And in relation to this topic, they had the question as to why did they, why were they sad when the person that abused them that wasn't a parental figure, mm. it was a, a caregiver, mm. but it wasn't a parent, but they were distraught when that person actually passed away. Mm. And other people that had similar experience couldn't understand 
why they had those feelings. Mm. Why did that come about? Look, I, obviously I can only speak in generality because yeah. I don't know the person, but sometimes uh, it is the case that the person who abuses the child both is loved and hated and yeah. feared at the same time. This is complex. Yeah. If you trust somebody but they betray that trust, what happens to the trust you had? Mm. It's still there somewhere. You don't know what to make of it, but it's in there. And then you have this other conflicting feeling which makes you feel pretty yucky uh, and at the same time you, I think, often have a hope that you can somehow resolve what happened. One of the things that people have over the years said to me is that when their abuser or, you know, their neglectful parent died, they would never now have the chance to resolve it. Yeah. So that can also be wound up in it. It's yep. very complex. Um, but I think that for children who are abused or neglected within the family setting, there is a very complex mixture of connection. I won't necessarily call it love yeah. because love conveys all sorts of other things. Yeah. Um, that perhaps don't sit right with people's recollections. But it's a sense of connection um, and for good or ill, that connection is there. Is it a positive force in the person's life? Probably not. But goes back to the point I was making before, it's familiar. So uh, and and abusive people will often uh, tell the child they're abusing that they really like what they're doing. Yeah. Which is also confusing. Yeah. Because sometimes our bodies betray us. Yeah. They don't like it. But they don't know what that means. Yeah. So that's also very complex. How important is it for people that have experienced abuse, let's just say the caregiver is still in their life, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's mm. an auntie, uncle, I don't know. How important is it for them to have this conversation? or talk about what took place for us, that level of closure? Because you mentioned when that mm. person passes away and they didn't get to have that conversation mm. and there's that, that they never really get to go through that and work through that. I'm not suggesting someone confront someone no. or anything like that. No. Or anything inciting violence or aggression mm. or blame or anything because we said we're going to dismiss mm. blame mm. in most cases. Uh, how, how important is that conversation for people to have? Look, I would... I would always recommend that if that conversation is going to be approached, it's facilitated somehow yeah. and supported by someone that the the individual who's undergoing the therapy trusts yeah. and feels safe with. That would be uh, my first go-to. I have to, really. Yeah. Uh, it would be good in some situations if it were possible. Yeah. In other situations... Depending on what yeah, the abuse was. Yeah. yeah, and in other situations uh, you, a good therapist might say explore with the individual what they would say. Like, So they're not yeah. in a room with the person but they will explore what would you say to them 
if they were sitting here. It seems like a very empowering experience. Yeah. I've heard of people writing letters mm. to people that have yeah. wronged them. The There's a range like of ways that that can be addressed without necessarily sitting in a room face Confront. to face. Yeah. That there's a risk in that, of course. Yeah. Um, and the risk in that is, you know, that the person just point blank dismisses it, yeah. which, you know, again, depending on the state of uh, where the person undergoing the therapy is at, they may be able to withstand that, but they may not. So it's also a very careful matter of thinking on the therapist's part in timing. Uh, but I would never suggest doing it without having thoroughly canvassed it mm. within the therapeutic relationship. Um, and, you know, you can't stop someone doing something. If they say, I'm going to, yeah. you can't necessarily influence that, but you can advise okay. against it at certain points. Yeah. Um, because the outcome, if it doesn't go well, could set the person back. Yeah. So... It, it's about developing expectations and thinking about the pros and cons of it yeah. um, because the situation for every person who has experienced abuse or neglect or both is incredibly complex. Mm. So, again, I say, isn't it amazing that I can sit here with honesty and say there is hope for people because there is, but within the midst of that complexity, yeah. it is not easy work. Most things in life mm. are not easy work mm. and they are complex and mm. there's many components and working parts, mm. but it's definitely worth the effort. It's worth the effort but with the knowledge that it can take a long time. I think that's hard for people to process because everyone's looking for instant gratification mm. and a quick fix in most things in life. Give no me such pill, thing. Give me whatever, mm. just fix it now. I don't want to feel these unpleasant feelings. Mm. I don't want to be consistent mm. and committed to this mm. unpleasant experience. But mm. it is part of the journey to heal. It is. Um, and many people self-medicate because it feels so awful. Yes. Um, and this again, our systems... I don't think really quite get it in terms of what that's all about. Yeah. Um, they're very judgmental. Uh, I know that, you know, there are some really great drug and alcohol programs that are not judgmental, but there are some that are very cognitively based and um, often if people don't succeed in them, they feel that they've failed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I would always say, take it easy on yourself. Yeah. There's a song that goes like that. No, no, that's long gone. Um, <laughs> but we have to be kinder to ourselves, which is a very difficult thing to do yeah. when you have an internal working model that makes you feel you're worthless. Yeah. We tend to be the opposite. You mentioned connection and it's such an important uh, factor in mm. anyone's well-being, mm. not just people that have experienced complex trauma. Mm. A lot of people have trust issues despite maybe not experiencing neglect or trauma. Most of the time they probably have on some level and that's mm. why it sort of resulted in this situation or mm. had certain things repeat throughout their life. How can people learn to trust again? Obviously safety, I predict, is one of the elements, that cultivating yep. safety. Yep. But how can they connect with others when they've got their walls up as like a 
normal defence mechanism? Well, it's a it's very much part of the journey. But um, you know, we when we started up the first pilot in Victoria for residential care that was therapeutic, it took ages for the kids who came to us to trust us. Months and months and months. And some of them had had many, many placements before. And they didn't believe that they were, this one was going to be any different. Yeah. So we had to demonstrate in lots of little ways by being benign, by being caring, by being firm. People found it very difficult to see what we were doing from the outside. Yeah. They used to say things like, oh, they kids just get away with anything up there. Um, they just dismiss it as bad behaviour. No, yeah, no consequences. When they said consequences, they really meant punishment. Yeah. And sure, we, we did <laughs> not do punishment. Um, we did the complete opposite of punishment. Yeah. We made sure that every young person there felt safe mm. as much as we could. And actually, connection did grow because, of course, once safety is established on the inside and kids really know that they are safe and that there's no danger of uh, them being harmed, they start to trust the individuals that they're working with. And I think it's a really interesting uh, tribute to the work that was done there. I had 22 staff who worked there. We were very fortunate because we were doing something different and new and we were afforded the latitude to try lots of different things and see which approaches worked best. Why isn't this regular practice now, though? Like it it was cutting edge. It it is in some places. Yeah, but it should be just the standard. It should. It should. I know you've been working behind working with this. That's a topic for another session because that will will go a long time. But um, I think it's a real tribute to the work that was done by all of the people who were there that pretty much every one of the young people who were there in those first two to three years kept in touch with at least one of the staff, and usually it was the the staff member who they felt the safest and the most comfortable with, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're talking about a program that started in 2007 wow. and relationships that were built then. So here we are in 2023 and they are still, every now and then, ringing up people. It's such a, an amazing thing to do. I know... Even from my personal experience, working with you over the years, learning mm. from you when I first got into youth therapeutic support consultancy, and young people that I work with still reaching out to me now, they're mm. adults. Yeah, know, well, you've had the same experience. Yeah, it's a yes. really rewarding experience it to, is. to have that relationship with people and know that you, know, that you are someone that they can count on and a safe person. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think that there's something that's probably worth saying. Has I got time to say you it? Do. Yes, I've just, I probably do. Um Often people think that trust is built over time Mm. only, right, that it's an essential. And actually I challenge that because, yes, it's an important element in some circumstances, but you can also build trust in a very short space of time by using the right skills and being able to demonstrate 
that you're trustworthy. Mm. Uh, and I just use as an example the stranger who you might sit next to on a plane or on a train or, you know, when you're waiting to board a plane. You might have a one-hour conversation with them. You've never met that person before. Mm. You'll never meet them again. Yeah. But something happens in that interaction. Yeah. It's the something that happens in the interaction that is really a very important part of building trust. Yeah, I guess it's an essential skill of building rapport, having mm. that connection, that feeling of safety that, as you said, with that example, can happen in moments. Can happen in moments. And quite um, confidently I can say that some people do innately possess the skills to do it. However, you can also learn how to do it. Yeah. I think anything's a learnable skill. People mm. have potential. Everyone's mm. got potential. Certain mm. people have talent at the beginning, but anything mm. can be developed. Mm. I, uh, and what happens within that trust, I'm going to tell one very, very quick story. Go for it. I was a consultant in relation to a 13-year-old girl, not in this state actually, uh, who was in a special house one-on-one -on -one with a carer. This is a little girl who'd run away from every other setting. But I'd written the model to look after her, to guide the staff about how to talk to her and what to say and what to do. And it was working because she was staying home. So I remember I said, I talked about it last week, that when we are in a state of hyperarousal from con constant abuse or neglect and fear of you know, ending because our needs aren't being met adequately, we become hyper-aroused and hyper-vigilant. So that hyper-arousal is physiological. Mm. It is patterned into the brain. It is physiological in terms of the production of adrenaline and cortisol. It makes your heart beat faster. It makes your body do all the things that a person in danger experiences. So this little girl came to the staff member and made a comment and then the staff member rang me. She rang me and she said, she's just come to me and said, am I dead? And I said, oh, what did you say? She said, oh, well, I said to her, no, of course, darling, you're not dead. You know, I'm talking to you, you're talking to me. Um, now and did something nurturing, you know, and they had a, you know, a nice experience together. It was positive. I said in the conversation to her, well, yes, but there's something I'd like you to go back and say to her as well because what she was experiencing was that she was no longer feeling her heart beating fast. Yeah. So because she couldn't feel it, she thought she must be dead. Yeah. Uh, what that told me was that she felt safe. Yeah. And I said to the carer, you must tell her that that means that she's feeling safe with you. What a gift to give someone. Yeah. Adela, always a pleasure. We will have to have you back again. I think we have to talk about maybe some conversations Lots. people could have. Mm. Workers in the industry working with people in residential mm. care, yep. parents, carers, people like that. There's so many things that we can discuss. So we'd love to have you back again. I'd love to come back. And remember all those people out there who might be hearing who've had complex trauma, there is hope. There is hope, everyone. Thank you for watching. You can heal.
Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune into my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Caram. Come on, Freddy's Kitchen in Station Street for a coffee and something nice to eat. Yeah, the pizzas are great. In fact, all the food rates down at Freddy's Caram Station Street. Come on, come on, come on, down at Freddy's now. Come on, come on, come on, down at Freddy's now. It's a pizza. It's a mystic pizza.